Don't worry about collecting things because you think you're supposed to like them. No, collect what you respond to. The deeper you go into that and the harder you work at it, the more likely it is that you will actually put something together that will have the potential to change the way people write history. Welcome back to Curious Objects. I'm Ben Miller, and I want to start out with a few words about why I've been so excited about this interview. As you know, I describe myself as an antiques evangelist. I don't buy the doom and gloom you sometimes hear about young people's apathy toward antiques, but the fact is plenty of people in this weird and wacky business are pessimistic or resigned to obscurity, or they simply don't see how we can communicate our enthusiasm and love for these objects to new generations. And let's be honest, the way people collect is changing. Dealers and museums do have to rethink business as usual. Antiques enthusiasts should understand better than anyone else that the world doesn't stay the same. Some people see this process of change as a threat or an obstacle, but my guests for this episode understand it, I think correctly, as an opportunity. To be clear, they are not in any way pandering or dumbing down or chasing publicity. What they are doing, at least as I see it, is doubling down on what really matters, what is really compelling, objects that convey meaning and power and beauty. Like the best dealers of past generations, they are connoisseurs and scholars and storytellers, but they also recognize that what matters about these objects at the end of the day isn't how important someone else tells us they are, it's how important they really are to us. And the job of a dealer or of a curator or even of a collector is to uncover that importance and share it. That's probably more philosophical waxing than you asked for. So let me go ahead and say who I'm talking about. My guests are the dynamic duo behind Honey and Wax Booksellers, Heather O'Donnell and Rebecca Romney. Heather O'Donnell founded the business in 2011. She had studied at Columbia and Yale, did work at Princeton, and worked for some years at the renowned firm Bauman Rare Books. Rebecca Romney also worked for Bauman alongside a long-standing gig as the rare book expert for the TV show Pawn Stars. She joined Honey and Wax in 2016 and was the co-author in 2017 of Printer's Error, Irreverent Stories from Book History. Rebecca and Heather were kind enough to invite me to their office in Brooklyn. It's a bustling place, not a sound studio, and I hope you won't begrudge some um, conference room chatter in the background. We'll get right to it, but first, a quick word from our sponsor. Have you ever wondered about the history of the Madonna and Child in fine art? Or about the macabre illustrator who inspired Tim Burton and Lemony Snicket? Freeman's, America's oldest auction house, tells the stories of these and other curious objects. Discover Pennsylvania's craft legacy. Go behind the scenes at auctions and exhibitions and uncover your passion for collecting. Head to freemansauction.com to sign up for their newsletter and get these stories and more delivered straight to your inbox. So uh, I am here with Heather O'Donnell and Rebecca Romney, who together are Honey and Wax booksellers. Um, we are in your offices in, in Brooklyn. Uh, and I am very excited to talk with you two um, for a number of reasons, one of which is that I have yet to have a, a rare book dealer on the podcast, um, which is a glaring omission. We're delighted to be your first ones. Yeah, well, I hope you represent the, the field properly. Uh, and when I, I, I want to just sort of tell our listeners a little story about how this got started, because when I emailed to ask for suggestions about objects that we could talk about, um, Heather, you wrote back to me with a list of uh, half a dozen um, different books, each of which sounded more fascinating than the last. And I just want to tell listeners to give them a sense of the kind of the range of material that you handle. So one of these was a 
uh, broadside about French revolutionary martyrs. One of them was a uh, manuscript by a Victorian teenager about natural science. One of them was a collection of interviews with Walt Whitman. One of them was a memorial broadside from 1680 uh, for the philosopher Thomas Hobbes. Um, we haven't even gotten to the thing that we actually chose, but just there you have three centuries represented and three different countries. Um, what are the boundaries to what you deal in? Are there boundaries? This is a question that we can never give a satisfactory answer to, at least in terms of other dealers. Most book dealers, they deal in photo books, they deal in modern first, they have very defined categories. Whereas what we bring to it is much more, I think, of our own sensibility. Um, we will cover things from really any era and any genre, as long as it speaks to us in a certain way. And that does fall into certain philosophical themes, I would say. Okay. We like to refer to ourselves as interdisciplinary, for example. We really like books that speak to each other and about each other. Um, and this is one reason why we carry a lot of books, not only literature and history, but um, criticism, design, education, and art. These things are often piggybacking on other uh, works of art or literature or history. Um, but overall, we really have a sort of know-it-when-we-see-it kind of vibe. Okay. <laughs> we very much like uh, works of art that show how, or, or works of printing, that show how classical and canonical ideas are transmitted to a mass audience. So um, we love the high spots, and we handle the high spots. We've certainly handled Leviathan, for instance, uh, Thomas Hobbes, but we also carry his memorial broadside, which is something that is actually much scarcer than Leviathan and in its own way tells you a lot about 17th century England um, and is a, a great way to get, get at Leviathan from a different angle. Um, we're basically all about approaching things from angles and that's when we're buying at fairs. We'll often meet in an aisle to discuss something we've seen and say, has a lot of angles. Hmm. Come at it this way, come at it that way. The more angles, the more we like it. We like to something that illuminates lots of different kinds of material. It's a geometric. Approach, exactly. Yeah. We want something that's really like prismatic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and we also the the genre of high spots is very. I mean, not the genre, but the idea of high spots is very well covered in the trade. And what we like to do is. We'll do the high spots. We like them. We have a history of being, you know, of, of handling them. But what gets us really excited and what we are interested in handling are what are kind of high spot adjacent. So how does it illuminate a high spot in a different way? How does it change our perspective about that era or that person? Um, so you're still engaging with Hobbes. You're still engaging with Walt Whitman with these notes, uh, for example, or the French Revolutionary Broadside. It's about the French Re Revolution, but it's this odd sort of visual representation of it, right? These are things that add a little bit more color to the standard narrative, and that's really appealing to us. And Rebecca, you said a minute ago that you like books that are in conversation with one another. Does that mean that the pieces that you acquire are, in some sense, dependent on the pieces you already have? Do you seek out things that that have a bearing on what's already in your collection? Or Well, a good example is that revolutionary broadside. It had a, a 
not only did it have the martyrs of the French Revolution at the time, like Marat, but it also had a few founders of liberty that were essentially people who were examples. And it showed, you know, pictures of Demosthenes, the great orator. And it had George Washington and Ben Franklin, right? And so that type of conversation, what the French Revolution was saying about George Washington is interesting to us. Okay, let's dive into the piece that is our um, curious object for today which I'm very excited to be seeing in person for the first time. What are we looking at today? We are looking at a first edition of Henry Highland Garnett's Memorial Discourse, and that was the first address delivered to Congress by an African-American. Henry Highland Garnett was uh, born a slave, escaped when he was a child, was a very active abolitionist, um, a colleague and sometimes competitor of Frederick Douglass in terms of the way they thought about the way abolition should be achieved. During the Civil War, uh, Garnet raised three regiments, I think it was, um, and served as their chaplain. And in recognition of that service, uh, he was asked to address Congress on the occasion Uh, of the passage of the 13th Amendment, abolishing slavery. And this talk, that talk is perhaps too colloquial, this address that he gave to the House of Representatives uh, on February 12th, 1865, was the first time that an African-American speaker had addressed the United States Congress. Um, And so it is a really moving document uh, for a lot of reasons. Um, One of them is the text that he takes as his starting point, um, which I will read you. Yes, he was an abolitionist, but also a preacher. He was the, you know, the chaplain of these troops, for example. And the text, of course, is is scripture. So this is a sermon, essentially, that he's delivering to Congress. To Congress. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Garnet takes as his text for this sermon, uh, Matthew 23, 4, for they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be born, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. Which is not the most conciliatory of ways to start off talking to Congress, um, but I think a very excellent one. And building on that verse, uh, he delivers an argument for slavery as the original sin of the United States that is going to have to be overcome, um, not just through the blood of the Civil War, but through enormous effort from all Americans in the in the decades to come. And that's an idea that obviously has more purchase today than it did at the time, although even now it's not without controversy. But how was it received? How did Congress respond to to this delivery? Well, the fact that this book exists at all shows that it was received very well because initially it was just an invitation to speak. There was no plan to print the sermon afterwards. However, a number of members of Congress and you know, people were in the audience liked it so much that they encouraged and they said you need to get this published it should be out there it should be on the record this is important and so that's why this book exists was it a commercial success were there multiple printings multiple editions what no how no (laughs) no don't get carried away i mean it is a sermon Uh, a powerful one though a powerful sermon um what we especially loved about this copy was who owned it right well so and and i want to get to the provenance in in a minute because that's a, another fascinating story but but can you tell me i mean how how rare is this disregarding the provenance how rare is this what we refer to as in commerce right in commerce it's actually pretty scarce you don't see many copies okay. of it. it's pretty well represented in institutions which i think speaks a lot to when it was first published 
you know, who's going to be interested? Who's the audience for this? And you can see how those copies would have ended up in institutions over the years. So it's not um, un- unheard of. Okay. But it is certainly on the market today something unusual to see. And it's right. something we were really right. happy to see because it doesn't really come up that often. And it's even rarer, of course, to have one with and with interesting provenance as this particular copy does. So, Heather, I cut you off, but um, but tell me who the celebrity owner of this uh, of this book was. Uh, well, this uh, this copy of Garnet's Memorial Discourse was owned by Lottie Wilson Jackson, and she was one of the very few African American women who were admitted to the National American Women's Suffrage Association. Um, you know, the primary sort of body of the American suffragette movement. Uh, After traveling to the 1896 NASA convention by train, she proposed that the organization adopt language condemning separate coach laws. Those were the Jim Crow laws that required black women to ride in white men's smoking cars where they were inevitably exposed to abuse. Um, you know, and to think of her coming on the train to the suffragette conference, being forced to sit apart from the white suffragettes uh, and exposed in that way is, you know, it's extremely moving. She gets there, she moves, that they take this up as a woman's rights issue. Um, and uh, the quote from uh, the, the coverage at the time says, uh, many Southern delegates took offense, provoking a lively discussion that grew quite warm and interesting. Oh, yes. Um, in the end, that proposal was defeated, and that marked a significant rift in the suffrage right. movement over the questions of race. This was her copy. It is signed twice by her, once with her maiden name and then once with her married name. So she kept it for for her entire life. And what we especially liked about it was just this object's sort of double status, not only the importance of what it was at the moment it came out, but the importance it came to have to someone decades later who was still dealing with so many of the struggles that Garnet is concerned to talk sure. about in the sermon. And who was pioneering another idea ahead of its time, intersectionality, the idea of common struggles between different minority groups. Exactly. Know. Well, this was a real moment for that where, you know, if People who are familiar with the history of feminist movements in the United States know that intersectionality has been a serious issue in the past, and this particular occasion was one of the earliest rifts in that. And you see someone, you see Lottie Jackson fighting for this right from that beginning and having that sort of setback. And you see someone like Garnett having this moment being the first African-American to speak in front of Congress. There's a really interesting dialogue here of of the fight that it isn't necessarily always forward progress. Sometimes it's two steps forward, one step back, or two steps forward, three step back, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and that fight, you have to keep pushing, you have to keep trying, you can't be complacent about it. And I love the idea that this single object captures that entire idea. Yeah, no, that's, that's a really interesting way of putting it. Do, Do you have any idea where the, where this has been subsequent to Jackson? No. No. Unfortunately, I mean, you know, with books, it's very rare that you have a completely unbroken chain of provenance. Sure. Um, we actually bought this book in London, right? We bought it overseas. Oh, right. Um, so it had somehow gotten across the pond, and then we brought it back. Okay. Was it, was it at an auction or private? or? It was at the London Book Fair. No kidding. No. Okay. Yeah. So it's um, made its way around. It's It's been around. Um, and we were very happy to throw it in our carry-on and, and take it back home. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the truth is that when we bought it, we knew about Garnett. We did not 
understand when we bought it who uh, Lottie Wilson Jackson was. Sure, right. Um, and we, that was a great pleasure. <laughs> we we, we oh, were yeah. looking for Garnett specifically because uh-huh. this is a great book on its own. So you were aware of it, of the existence of the book we before We were aware you... of it. And we, um, you know, we thought it was something that was perhaps a bit overlooked or undervalued, that people didn't, didn't really remember what it was or that, that it would be something that would be easy to sell in a way because once people understand that it's the first time an African-American spoke to Congress, that is itself a selling point so strong for most right, institutions. Right, right. Um, I mean, we have not actually attempted to sell this book as yet because it's going to be in our fall catalog. So oh, okay. <laughs> you, are, you are the first one to see this book. Oh, um, but uh, yeah, but we, uh, we're very, very happy to have it for the, the short time that we do. And I would imagine the market for it is stronger in America than it would have been in London. I think so. I think so. There uh, is a tendency, I think, for things like this to get overlooked if they're outside of a clear context. Mm-hmm. And that's what a dealer, you know, with a with a knowledge base, that's what you bring. Right. That's kind right. of what you're right. getting paid for in a lot of ways, right? <laughs> it's funny. Yeah, it's interesting how often that happens, you know, certainly in the silver world. You know, we one of the most important pieces of American silver that we have had in recent years turned up at a, a tiny little out-of-the-way auction in Holland. And, you know, how this 18th century New York teapot ended up in Holland, we have no idea. But nobody in continental Europe had any idea what it was. Um, right. So it allowed us to steal it. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, that's, that's the best-case scenario. How do you assess the value of a piece like this? I mean, this is not so hard. Um, I mean, it is a known book, and there is a, a market history on it. We think the provenance definitely adds to its appeal. Um, we have it priced in the catalog at 4500 I think so. I think so. Actually, I will be Check. able to. It's, it's literally, it's literally yeah, right. in the book. <laughs> let's just let's take a look before I... Here it is, 4500 Yeah, so we have it at $4,500. Um, so, you know, it's a rare book, but it's not a, you know, a stratospherically expensive book. It's no Leviathan. But mm-hmm. it's a... It's a great thing, I think, and and a really moving copy. I think we're attracted to books that almost require us to make an argument for it. We like the pitch. Mm-hmm. We like saying, this is something that you were going to overlook, but you shouldn't. Right. So, and, yeah, so tell me about this. The, the, the research process, obviously, is something that motivates both of you. We both get a, a big kick out of it. And, in fact, that's one of the most fun things about us you know not living in the same town most of the time is getting on the phone and saying guess what guess what guess what listen to this listen to this um because we've been digging into something that looked kind of interesting to us and we've discovered that it's actually way more interesting than we thought it was when we bought it um that's that's the best i mean the research process takes place on a lot of different levels there is our sort of ongoing research which is just our lives which is where we're reading <laughs> right. about things or we're learning about things and we're saying to each other did you know uh-huh. that do you, do you know what the first english language literary periodical in africa was i think we should know that and i think we should buy it and i think we should bring it to the new york book fair you know something like that what is it um, it is black a orpheus. fantastic mm-hmm. black orpheus with wow. these incredible screen printed covers amazing we did in fact put together a complete set of black orpheus and bring it to the new york book fair where it immediately sold out of our booth before the fair opened which is was right? on the one hand Great, 
But on the other hand, depressing because mm-hmm. we were really excited to have it be, you know, part of our booth. Also, it took up an enormous amount of space. Oh, it looks so <laughs> oh, good. I see. It, it looks, looks so good. good. Which you then it had to fill. It looks so good. No, Rebecca called and was like, you have to bring some more books from the office because it's really sparse <laughs> in here right now. Well, literally, because it was the entire first series and they had these amazing covers. And so it was taking up about three shelves and it was just like this blockbuster yeah, thing. Wow. We, were so, we were so proud of it because it was really hard to put together the run too. And so here it is. It's our pride and joy. And then literally within hours of this fair opening <laughs> You were victims of your own success. Well, that's just it. This yeah, is, we learned this, from this. This is filed under good problems. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So you're just what you pick up in your daily lives. Right. Your so personal interest. That's one part we, of it. We, we get curious about things and we think, you know what? Did you know about this? Let's keep an eye out for that. Let's, you know, let's, let's start looking around. Um, and then, of course, there's the, the sort of opposite thing where we come across something, an object, a book, a broadside, something in some context, and we don't really know what it is. And we maybe can't immediately figure it out on the fly, but we just have a feeling about it. And we think there's something here. Let's bring it back. Let's bring it back to Brooklyn and, and put this under the microscope and see what it is. Um, and so that's Uh yeah yeah that's and that's you know to me that's the great privilege of being a bookseller is that you know you can be interested in stuff and then you can learn about it and that's actually your job and no one can take that away from you In, in a sense it's like a meta field of of dealing right because the books themselves contain information there's information about the books but there's also information inside them so you wind up learning all kinds of all kinds of things. And sometimes even books where the contents are kind of boring are as books really fascinating because of something that they made happen in the world. You know, mm-hmm, so that's mm-hmm. um, that's also, you know, there's lots of different ways to be interested. So many in angles. Things. So many angles. So many angles. We love that. Listeners will, will know that um, a, a previous guest of mine, a maps dealer named Kevin Brown, um, used a, a, a bit of language that I found very helpful, which is, um, to talk about antiques in a Rumsfeldian context, <laughs> and the you know the the now infamous Rumsfeld line about known knowns and known unknowns and unknown unknowns, um, but to put it in a very different context, you know I think um, in any area of antique dealing you're going to have your commodities, your leviathans, your known knowns right. that um, you know people more or less agree on what they are, what their value is. Um, you know, how do you assess the value of one versus another based on condition, etc. And then you have your known unknowns, which are sort of the things that maybe you know about, but they're less well-known in the world, or maybe you don't know about, but there are people in the world who know about it. And so you can sort of, you can say, oh, well, this is, uh, there's, it's, it's harder to say exactly what it's worth. It's harder to say, yeah, exactly. So this, this, uh, this book that we're talking about today is unknown unknown and then you have your unknown unknowns which are the things that nobody has ever seen before and you really have to figure out what it is what's going on we with had it. something like that just recently oh, that, yeah. um we another thing we had found when we were um in england we had found essentially what it was was kind of a matching math game um, from the early 1800s and you know it was printed and then hand colored and everything and the thing is in this era you see you see history games and you see um, geography, games. geography, right? Uh, but math in, is very, very unusual. It's something that both of us were like, I've never seen this before. And that sort of set something off for, for us. And so we looked into it and really we could find nothing. 
and we hardly knew anything. We had to do sort of a, a approximation. We could tell based on how it was printed, we could get it dated and everything. But in terms of the market, we could find no record of anything hmm. quite like this. And so, you know, we catalog it and we price it. And then when we put it into an e-list, we had how many orders for it within a few hours? It's like five or something. Really? I mean, with the, and we were like, oh, I think maybe we priced it too low. Oh, no. Although maybe we priced it just right. I mean, it's That's always true. hard to tell, right? Yeah, um, yeah. But um, but yeah, that that was a perfect. That's a time when you something. wish you were running an auction house. Exactly right. <laughs> right? Yes. Yeah, Who that knows would be... what this is? Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, pricing is a real. You know, it's something that we um, actually have to talk about a lot um, because so many of the things that we handle aren't. You know, sort of obvious first editions where the the There's range is so narrow that you mm-hmm. you don't even have mm-hmm. to talk about it really. Um, you know, a lot of these things. It is a question of like, is this a ten thousand dollar thing? Or is it maybe actually a $20,000 thing? Maybe like, can, and then the question becomes like, can you make an argument compelling enough for $20,000? Like, can you do that research and like present say an institution with enough material that they say, actually, this is worth $20,000 and we will, we will get $20,000 worth of use out of this object. So we're going to do it. Um, that's the fun. Right. Can you back up? Can you back up what you're saying? Mm-hmm. With something mm-hmm. when there is no established price yeah um and yes that's absolutely what we spend our time doing but partially because we do we by temperament we love to research this is what we and we do on our own free time <laughs> it's true it and is so, our hobby so. so yes we have sort of turned that into the business strategy of what research what evidence can we bring to bear to back up anything especially when we're dealing with sort of not necessarily unknowns entirely but things that have a less clear market mm-hmm. record what would you like to know about garnett's book that you don't know what are are there I, are there still avenues you, of research oh, that I, you, I think there's quite a bit that you could that you could research uh i would be interested i mean garnett was famous in his way before this sermon for being much more militant than many of the black abolitionists um and that was where he and douglas really fell out because garnet was perfectly happy with armed insurrection he did not see a problem um despite being a preacher despite being a preacher well well, this is why he raised the troops is because once the civil war happened he was like everyone's finally in agreement with me that (laughs) we need to we in fact are going to do this Mm -hmm. so everyone get Mm -hmm. up let's go um and so that makes it in a way, all the more surprising that he would have been the one chosen to do this because he was not a particularly conciliatory figure. And the text he chose to preach on is not a particularly conciliatory text. Um, I mean, it's quite open uh, about the fact that slavery wasn't just, you know, a regrettable mistake. It was a sin. It was an outrage. It was crime. Um, And it's a national crime that he wants national reparations for. Um, I would be interested to see where else Garnet has turned up in resistance mm. literature across the, mm-hmm. not just the United States. I mean, I would be interested to see, because actually I would bet that if you did something on post-colonial Africa, you could find Garnet oh, woven definitely. through there too. That would be Ooh. interesting. Certainly because of his in- interactions later. But that would me think of, if you're talking about Garnet's role in radical literature and then you think of um Lottie Jackson as also being somewhat of a radical a suffragette that's actually that's radical um how that book got there we were just speaking earlier we don't actually know the total provenance of this book we only know her particular period of ownership because she put her ownership signatures in them in it and 
who had it before her? Mm-hmm. Who had it after her? Were there other radicals? <laughs> you know, you know, I, I have to wonder if there were, you know, if this, that was why this book was speaking to her. Was this particular copy did it speak to other people in that same way? Right. Did she have a mentor who right. gave exactly. it to who her? Gave it to her. A, yeah, yeah. Who knows? I mean, we, we don't know. So obviously we don't right. say anything, but that, if that's the one thing I would be very curious for, to, for this particular copy. If, to if you could send a video camera back in time and see where it's been. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. How it went from, from hand to hand. Yeah. Books are the type of thing. I'm sure you see this in a lot of antiques, but books rarely rise to the level for people of thinking it's important enough to document their movement from person to person. And so it is sort of unusual to be able to trace any sort of detailed right. provenance. And you have to often just use clues within the book itself, like the ownership inscription. Uh-huh. Yeah, that is interesting. You know, it's we are a bit spoiled in silver in that because of the monetary value of the objects, they're usually traced in wills and other family documents. Um, which is not the case for books, which are often in bulk. You'll see they, oh, they had 200 books and they don't uh-huh. even give the titles. Uh-huh. <laughs> and books are often just handed from one person to another mm-hmm. and lent and dispersed into the world. Um, yeah, there's not, it's, you know, it, it's a really significant book collection that gets enumerated in a will, um, right. you know, or at an auction. For the most part, it's usually shelf lots or, you know, yeah, as you say, 200 books. Well, if you, you know, you can buy Harvard classics by the yard, so. (laughs) (laughs) Ever wondered about the history of tea in China and Japan? or what was revealed in never-before-seen photographs of a Russian empress in exile. Freeman's, America's oldest auction house, tells the stories of these and other curious objects. Discover how Thomas Aiken's Gross Clinic stayed in Philadelphia, the science behind colored diamonds, and much more on their website, freemansauction.com. From modern masters to French furniture, Freeman's takes you behind the scenes at auctions and exhibitions, delivering the latest in art market news events and stories. Subscribe to their bi-weekly magazine and get it sent straight to your inbox. Visit freemans at freemansauction.com to learn more. I always like to take a minute here to say a big thank you for listening and to remind you that you can see pictures of today's curious object at themagazineantiques.com slash podcast, as well as on my Instagram at Objective Interest. If you'd like to send me comments or ideas for future guests, you can email me at podcast at themagazineantiques.com. I love hearing from you. And if you want to help spread the word, and I know that you do, a great way to do that is to leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever app you're using. I really appreciate it. All right, let's get back to Heather O'Donnell and Rebecca Romney. Um, I want to get a little meta and talk a bit about the the business that you're in and the business that, in a larger sense, I'm in also. Um, and Rebecca, I wanted to ask you about, um, for starters, about your experience with Pawn Stars, mm. which um, if people listening know who you are, that's one of the likely ways that they that they know who you are. Right. Um, so you, you've been on that show quite a bit uh, as a book consultant. Um and you've been very successful in connecting with uh, with viewers, um, which is like kind of a miraculous thing like to see someone in a specialized field 
of like very erudite collecting, um, able to tell stories that people really enjoy, you know, that a mass audience enjoys. So what's your secret? <laughs> uh, and how, how can the rest of us um, fuddy duddies work your magic? Well, I will say, so I recently gave a talk about this on the, the Grolier, essentially. I would say that my experience on Pawn Stars in some ways had mixed results, and it wasn't always positive, um, but it was always worthwhile because of the positive results, because there were so many people who would say, you know, I'm interested in collecting because of you, or I never thought of things that way, or maybe, you know, now I'm going to start reading again. It was really, you know, there are enough positive things that that the negative seemed to sort of be outweighed. But, I mean, the only thing I can say, when people ask me what filming was like for Pawn Stars, I say, essentially, all I did was do the same thing that any bookseller does every single day, which is that, you know, you have a customer in front of you, and it's, say it's a $5,000 book, you have two to five minutes to explain to them why that book matters and why you have placed priced it at five thousand dollars right and so the only thing that was different was cameras were there <laughs> essentially and so in that way it was very meta which is to say that you know i wasn't a regular on the show i wasn't an actor i was really just called in to do what i do every single day and i would go in i would do that for you know an hour and then i would go back to work at the gallery where i the gallery I ran, like that was my actual job. And yes. And then what resulted from that because of the amplification of television was suddenly this sort of crazy, weird TV reaction where people were really um, relating in ways that were totally unexpected. But in fact, it's really what every dealer does. But see, that's so interesting here because, you know, oftentimes I think, well, you know, if I'm at an antique show and someone comes up and is interested in in an object, I'm going to have a conversation with that person that is going to be very different from the kind of conversation I would have with um, a, a friend of mine from a different field. Yes. Right. Someone who is not already a committed collector, someone who doesn't have any background in, in the field. Um, so I get it. So I did have an advantage in that sense because I started in Rare Books in a gallery in Las Vegas. Okay. <laughs> right. So I was working for Bowman Rare Books. This is where I got started. And Bowman already, of course, had a very long history. It's been open for decades in um, first, you know, in Philadelphia and then in New York. And because of that, I was able to access a sort of institutional authority and have a type of rare book apprenticeship, as it were, to learn the material myself. But on my end, where I was doing the talking... I was dealing with new people, crowds who were not familiar with the New York rare book scene or the Philadelphia even. Most of the people who came into the Las Vegas gallery had never even considered that you could collect books. They didn't even know that this was a thing you could do. They think that all the books are, you know, these sort of like $20,000 books, they're all in museums. Mm -hmm. You know, this isn't Mm -hmm. something that I can do. Or they say it's all $20,000 books, there's nothing I can collect, which is also not true. And so for many people coming in, it was a revelation. And I spent every single day working with people from square one. And it could be that where (laughs) I just over and over and over again have gotten so used to talking with people who didn't know this was possible but I can see in their eyes every single time you know these people who come in and are enchanted by it and say I can't believe I found this this is it just opens up a new horizon to them and that's a really special moment for me 
with it was for myself and it is when I see it in other people so I think oftentimes that's what I latch on to and that's what I think about when I'm introducing someone to sort of basic concepts in rare books Heather how many women antiquarian booksellers are there well, I don't have a statistic for you <laughs> okay. on that. I mean, there have been very, very accomplished, very, very influential women in the American book trade for a long time. Um, you know, as I suspect that you are asking this because uh, Rebecca and I are often interviewed on this question um, because the ABAA, the Antiquarian Booksellers Association of America, has recently um, launched a women's initiative in an attempt to uh, boost full membership in the ABA for women dealers who currently make up about 15%, which, you know, seems quite low, really, at this date, 15%. Um, Is that lower or higher than the number in Congress? No. <laughs> oh, that's like such a sad comparison. I don't know if comparison. we want to know the answer to that you're question. Killing me here. Yeah. You're killing me with this. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, the good news is that actually... Uh, I think it's an entirely solvable problem. There are lots and lots of women who are already active in the trade who just don't aspire to full membership. Okay. Um, for any number for of any reasons. For any number of reasons. Sure, sure. Um, don't, don't necessarily see the value of that. Um, so part of what we're doing is trying to bring in new women dealers, support women dealers early in their career, and encourage them to think about taking a leadership role in the trade um, because that ultimately changes the way that, that the trade feels to people who walk into a book fair, for instance. I would love to, you know, in the last years of my career, walk onto the floor of the New York Armory and just see something like an equitable balance. Um, that would be that would be fantastic if, if we could reach parity. Do you think that there are problems specific to the antique business or to the antique book business that make it particularly difficult relative to other fields for for women to get involved. Well, I would say like any um, like any sort of antiquarian or antique business, whether it's books or anything else, um, you know, conservation and conservatism is a very important value, rightly so. Conservative in the in the true sense of caring about the past and taking you know paying attention. To the, ta to the past, understanding what it was, preserving the good parts of it, um, which is fantastic and something that I think we really respond to. I mean, it's what we spend so much of our time doing is trying to, um, to do justice to the artifacts of the past. But the result is, of course, it, there is just a, a generally slow trajectory of change in any particular direction. People are very set in their ways. They like things done a certain way. It's it's not that easy to come into the antiquarian book trade, I would say, with a revolutionary idea and just get everyone all excited about sure. trying something new. And right. People want to have right. the same booth they've had for 20 years. They, got, they don't want any changes. They want to know what they're doing. I wouldn't know anything about well, that. Moreover, I, th I think that um, a really useful comparison for books in particular is the rare, books, um, rare book librarianship because the library world is dominated by women, and that includes the rare book side of libraries. Okay. So why is that the case in libraries but not in the trade? And I think that one of the key differences is that the trade, as we know, it's very difficult to break into a, this as a business. It requires a certain amount of risk. It absolutely requires capital. And it requires being able to weather a lot of monetary insecurity. And if you think about how even, you know, in the 70s, women weren't even able to get loans 
you know, right. in many cases. Yeah. Like, this is yeah. something that the whole, like, second wave of feminism was about, is women being able to even get loans for mortgages, you know, not being denied loans for mortgages just because they were pregnant, for example. And so you think about, yes, now we're having a lot fewer problems with that because women are able to take more risks. But you're, it's not surprising that there were fewer women in 1960s dealers because what funds what monetary risk could they take yeah yeah i think also i mean in a sort of similar related way one reason why for instance women are so well represented in the library and university world is that those are you know so there is an overarching institution there with the human resources department and policies and the book trade is just a whole bunch of you know entrepreneurs, many of whom are incredibly cantankerous. And we're all doing you, this we're all, because we're unemployable it's, elsewhere. It's true. There is a sense <laughs> that it is like the island of broken toys and it's just a bunch of really obsessive people who have, you know, decided that this is the only way they can work. Um, we're going to so, have to cut this from the, from the podcast. <laughs> That's okay. Don't cut that. Because no one would deny this is no the thing. Everyone embraces this as complimentary. He's going to come back and be like, oh no. It's like a bunch of well-adjusted joiners. <laughs> no one would say that. No, one. no, I guess what I would say is the library and university world is one that has you know, a strong institutional structure, human resources, grievance committees, that has a, you know, a sort of uh, an overarching system that encourages in a very yeah. deliberate way things like... Um, Things like parity between men and women, diversity things like diversity generally. in general, representation in general. It's something that right. they feel at least, you know, they need to pay some sort of service to in, you know, institutionally. The book trade is not like that because it is a bunch of small business owners for the most part just doing their thing. So but to if some you extent, are, I mean, isn't this kind of what the initiative at the ABA is, exactly. is well, about? Well, exactly. Is, it's to say, you know, you feel like you can't do this because you look at it and you think, oh, I could never run my own business. I could never, I could never do that. It's too hard. It's too difficult. And to say, actually, in fact... It is difficult, but it's not impossible, and it's enormously rewarding. Yeah. And being there's a lot to be said for being your own boss, as we know, and getting to buy what you like and do what you like. Um, that is incredibly liberating and freeing. But it's not something that women, in general, are raised to you know think of themselves as doing. I mean, certainly, I know when I left, I was a uh, an academic before I became a bookseller and the the expression of naked panic on my father's face when I you know talked to him about my plan to sell books out of my apartment was you know I mean I still remember it it was a it was a keen keen expression and he had already watched you go into academia that must have been bad enough I mean enough. it's like it's really there's just you know it's like at what point will my daughter live a remunerative mm. life <laughs> um okay so and and so you've talked a little bit about the um the entrepreneurial side but you could say some similar things about the collecting side um i mean certainly i know that uh in in our little world of silver and jewelry uh, not that there aren't female collectors there certainly are um but many of the top end you know sort of most serious most committed collectors are men part of that probably has to do with wealth um i think not probably i think it, okay. it, it directly has to do with wealth um and that's certainly but there the may be other uh, there may be other things at play there too though right besides sheer financial ability um well this is a subject as you probably know that is dear to our hearts because yes. we, uh, we yeah i want you to to give a plug here <laughs> well you know we uh one thing that we have done for the past two years has been to run an annual 
uh, prize for young women book collectors, $1,000 to the best book collection produced by an American woman 30 years old or younger. And um, best doesn't mean most expensive. Best does not mean most expensive. It doesn't mean most expensive. It doesn't mean the most obvious titles. It doesn't mean putting a bunch of modern firsts on your dad's credit card. It doesn't mean anything like that. What we are looking for um, is a kind of vision, a kind of curiosity and inquiry and obsession in a topic that maybe other people don't see as valuable, that by that person's attention and that person's um, interest becomes of interest to other people as well. And what's so interesting about that is that it's honestly the strangest and most unusual things that make the best collections, that make the real contributions. We don't need someone to put together another you know, collection of first editions of F. Scott Fitzgerald. We all know what those books are. They're great books, but that done just that way is no longer an interesting intellectual pursuit right. groundbreaking it's yeah there's nothing original about it or or you know there's no curiosity in it um it's just checking things off a list what we want to see in all collectors not just women and not just young people what we want to see in everyone is just more latitude more openness creativity to, more creativity more interest in odd things like embrace the weirdness you know just go for that strange thing that you don't think anyone else could ever be interested in because it's that collection ultimately that becomes the thing that makes us see other things differently mm-hmm. i think one of the reasons that we founded the prize too is is a positive act of encouragement because what we have observed ourselves and what we've heard from many women collectors speaking to another reason why maybe you see fewer women collectors is that um, a lot of, I think, dealers are unaware of how quickly they can turn off a women collector. Mm. You know, we hear stories from women collectors talking about walking into a booth with their husband and they're the collector and yet the dealer totally ignores them and only talks to their husband. And so in some ways, you know, instead of focusing on the negative aspect of that, like, ugh, women are treated terribly. We wanted to focus on the positive aspect and say, women, we want you here. Women, there are interesting things happening here and you can contribute. And the prize has been wonderful for that because it's an excuse to talk about these interesting things people are doing and saying, like, isn't this great? And don't we want to see more of this? And the answer is, of course we do, right? So it's, it's adding something constructive into this conversation to build the future that we want to see. I mean, it was definitely inspired in part by just being told by a lot of, you know, I would say fairly lackadaisical older dealers, you know, the young people, they don't collect the women, they don't collect, they don't buy the books, they don't like the books. Just thinking, you know, we know they don't buy your books, (laughs) but are you sure they're buying no books at all? Mm -hmm. Is that what's happening? Mm -hmm. Are they just not buying them for you? Are they just not... Are they just attracted to material that's not even on your radar or our radar? Stuff right. that we just don't see right. in our, you know, fairly insular little worlds that we're living in. What would it be like to actually get testimony from people about what they've been doing with their collections? And it was has been, I mean, I think we can agree. It's like our favorite week of the year when we read these applications because we're just like, look at this woman in North Dakota. Look at what she's doing. Well, in wow. some ways it felt like a successful science experiment. Right? We had this hypothesis. Like, I bet young people, I bet young women in particular are collecting really interesting things if we only give them a chance to say so. And we put that out there and 
we were right when we got <laughs> I'm sorry I'm gonna crow a little bit about that when we got the applications I know we were we, we were, so, were proud. so happy and there were that's why we initially we only were going to do a single winner we ended up doing a number of honorable mentions both years because we got so many interesting collections we want to do as much as we could to highlight yeah. all of these different women doing different interesting things and it is really a youth argument too as much as it is a woman argument it's diversity in a few different ways that's so interesting I mean if I had a dime for every time I heard oh young people these days um, uh-huh. Yeah, I, I could. I wouldn't have to be dealing in <laughs> antiques, <laughs> but I could. I could buy them all instead of selling them. Um, and and yet, you know, I think I agree with you. I think that's so wrong-headed. And at a certain point, as a dealer, I think you have to ask: Well, is the problem the whole world around me, or is the problem me? <laughs> Um, well, maybe it's the whole world, but uh, I mean, the world has problems, but there are there is energy out there and i think among younger generations today a genuine interest in the past and in you know in preserving history in archives in thinking about ways to talk about what in the past has brought us to the world we live in right now um and i want to do anything that we can to harness that and encourage it and you know write some checks to it because that's that's what i see as ultimately those are the people who are, we want to be dealing with in 20, 30 years. Like we want to see them come to fruition as collectors. This is to the benefit of the rare book world as a whole. If we want the rare book world to continue to thrive, we have to encourage the next generation, not say, oh, young people don't read. Young people aren't interested in books. <laughs> right? I mean, if you say that, like, you, then they have to come in spite of you. How about you invite right. them in instead? Right, right, right. Yeah, and isn't it true that uh, that young people are actually reading more books now than ever before? In fact, it's true, and young women reading more than anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that there's like an obvious case to be made for encouraging thinking about the book in a different way. You know, not just as a text, although that's important, but as an artifact that has a lot to say historically as well. Material um, culture, print culture. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, okay, I want to get one more plug-in rebecca you you had a book out last year yes uh, speaking of reaching out to the public um printer's error tell tell me about this book yes printer's error captures a lot of what we've been talking about here which is the theme i think you're seeing running through a lot of this is bridge building how do we get more people interested in things that we think are important and one thing we always have to keep in mind is that our world is so small and it's so easy for us to just take it grand, take for granted our tiny little world that everyone in our world has the same assumptions. But we can't assume that people on the outside of our world have the same values as us. So we have to reach out to them constantly and explain why it matters to collect, why you should care about these as historical artifacts and what impact that has. And so Printer's Error was really an attempt to build a bridge in a different format to a wider audience about book history generally. And the basic conceit is finding the human element in book history. So who are the people and how can we make them feel more real? Because I think, you know, you put someone like Shakespeare up on a pedestal, that almost immediately becomes boring to people <laughs> because that just, it just, there's no connection. It's hard to, harder to connect with someone when they don't feel real. And so we picked stories that pointed out, for instance, the human flaws, errors or um, feuds between people, that type of thing. And what that was hopefully demonstrating was 
that people 500 years ago, 300 years ago, not very different from today. And if you can make that connection, you can really appreciate what was happening then. And if that can pull people into why book history is actually really interesting, mm -hmm. that's the goal. Yeah. Well, they probably didn't collect antiques either. Also, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, well, I, I feel we should move toward wrapping up here, but what, um, what can I ask you for some advice? Um, what, well, on behalf of young collectors everywhere, <laughs> what would you, what advice would you give to someone who's starting out as a, as a book collector today? The first thing I would say is that don't worry if you don't have a lot of money, because that's actually the least important part for a lot of collections. What you should think about is what do you know already a disturbing amount about <laughs> that other people do not seem to find as interesting just as you because, do? Just because you're obsessive and you've just gotten on this thing. Right, and you just, you just somehow know this stuff. It could be anything. Um, so look through your the, Wikipedia history and yeah, look at your or just you know, are you someone who has collected every flyer from every you know band who played in your local club? You know, because that's actually the beginning of something that is a historical archive. You know, start looking at what you're passionate about, what you care about, what you show up for, what's there when you show up that's hanging out that uh, that gets recycled at the end of the night. But maybe you take one home and you keep it. Um, I mean, I remember after 9-11, actually, uh, back then I was teaching at Princeton and I was taking uh, the train, New Jersey Transit, out there um, a couple times a week. And, and in the weeks after 9-11, there were flyers all through the trains about, um, ab about terrorism and about what to look for and what to keep. And I still have some of those because I just, I mean, it's not, it didn't turn into a collection, but I just felt like this is... This is a throwaway thing that like will mean something to someone yeah, one day right. when they see you know what New Jersey Transit printed on September thirtieth, two thousand and one. You know it was a uh, it was important. Um, so things like that, things that you can even pick up for free or for very very little, but that are related to something you really care about. Like start start with that. Start with that if you have no money. But but try to try to build it out. Try to see how it connects to other things, and maybe get some of those things in there. Um, if you have that kind of, and you know, not everyone does, but a lot of people do have an eye for something, even if it's not something that's traditionally considered collectible or you know academically valuable. Follow that. Do that. Go deep into that. Don't worry about collecting things because you think you're supposed to like them or because that's like, those are classic books and that's what you collect. No, collect what you respond to. The deeper you go into that and the harder you work at it, the more likely it is that you will actually put something together that will have the potential to change the way people write history. That they will look at that and they will say there is something about this that tells us something we were curious about but we didn't know. Now we know because look at this. Look at what, look at what we have here. Here's the, here's the archive. Here's the evidence. That's something that everyone can do, no matter where they live, no matter how much money they have. And I think it is actually like probably the single most valuable service <laughs> that you can do in a lot of cases for the historical record to like just take responsibility for that little bit of history and make it make it something that is really is really available to future generations. What a fantastic note to end on. <laughs> Thank you so much, Heather Thank and Rebecca. You. I really appreciate your time. Thanks. That's our show for this month. I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks so much to Heather and Rebecca for joining me. Today's episode was produced and edited by Sammy Delotti, and our music is by Trap Rabbit. I'm Ben Miller, and I'll catch you next month.